All right. Well, we're getting uh, started a little bit late. We'll just cut that part off. Um, Rich is going to have to do the editing on that one. I was watching, I was actually watching uh, some friends of mine uh, talking about Islam on uh, while I was riding today. And they're, it's a video series. And <clears throat> they start having problems with one of the slides. And I could start hearing their Rich, you know, the guy behind the camera talking, you know. And not saying that that one's not that one's messed up. I can guarantee you that one's messed up because the light is ten times brighter than it's supposed to be. So uh, that's that's really, in fact, it's so bright it's annoying. So you might want to switch whatever you just did that made that the ISO um, or the next one up. Turn it back off. I don't that that light is literally bright. Thank you. <clears throat> um, you gotta fix that one before we use it again. Anyway. Uh, so the guy's sitting there talking to them and says, uh, okay, all right, I'll do these slides. Okay, ready? Action. <laughs> and they forgot to edit that part out. So, hey, it happens, and uh, we're live, so it just works that way. So welcome to 2024. Something tells me that is somewhat of an in indication of what's coming in 2024. Uh, just sort of generally... I mean, I mean, Japan has a huge earthquake, and then they, they they're live with a plane landing in an airport. Did you see that? It only happened a few hours ago. There's a plane landing in Japan, and they're for some reason they have live coverage, and it explodes upon landing. I mean, just boom. I mean, uh, okay, yeah. Uh, welcome to uh, welcome to 2024. You know, people reminded me back. You know, in late 2019, I had said, um, uh, I foresaw 2020 was going to be a weird year. And I'm not talking about any type of prophetic thing or anything like that. It just seemed like there were a lot of people saying the same things. And of course, 2020 ended up being one of the weirdest years ever. And now it's, we got 2024. It does not take a profit um, to go, oh, presidential election year in the United States. Okay. Um, all this wild, insane, crazy stuff about, you know, carbon neutral by 2030 and all this utterly impossible stuff that, that cannot possibly be done. <coughs> that will... <clears throat> destroy the United States economy and hence the world's economy. Because, you know, it's, it's real easy for us to sit here and go, well, you know, our economy could collapse. Our money's worthless. It's true. <clears throat> That's true. Um, if China wanted to collapse our economy, they could uh, tomorrow. Only problem is there's no way for them to do that without taking themselves out too. Uh, and everybody else along with it. I mean, they are they're in no better shape than we are. I mean, we owe so much more, but they're very weak. Um, and a lot of it's demographics. They just, they're aging, just like the Koreas are in Japan and everything else. And <clears throat> so there's just, there are so many trends and, and so many things going on in the world right now. And most of us don't have any clue um, what's really going on. We, we think we do, uh, because we have our, um, sources that we, uh, that we trust and that we look at. 
Uh, man, as I just want everybody to know, by the way, my sweater is not nearly as bright as it looks like on uh, on 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 the what I can see. Anyways, it's it. I mean, it's three times brighter on the screen than than this actually is. It's actually, I mean, it's it's bright, but it's not that bright. Um, I can't even look at myself up there right now. It's just wow. Anyway, 2024, it's starting off great. <clears throat> and um, we all live in our own little echo chambers, and we choose what we'll hear and what we'll not hear. And, um, and the fact of the matter is, I do not have any trust whatsoever any longer in almost anything that can be called media. There aren't any journalists left um except outside the mainstream media and even then you know just because it's outside the mainstream doesn't make it accurate or truthful or right um i don't trust what my eyes see on the internet because i i can watch entire movies with cgi characters and i i mean i was i the wife was watching something i walked in I think it was New Year's night because we were New Year's Eve. We were. I'm ready to. I'm ready to vote against fireworks from now on. To be perfectly honest with you, um, or at least limit them to a couple of hours. Um, but New Year's Eve, I had to go shooting home right after church because, um, you know, th- it sounds like downtown Hanoi uh, in in my neighborhood and. And our cats are going to end up, you know, 10 miles away, running away from all this stuff. And uh, my wife was watching something. And honestly, I'm watching. I'm going, is this CGI? No, no, those are real actors. Are you sure? I mean, I just honestly could not tell. Uh, it, it just, something didn't seem right to me. Um, and that's where the technology is. So, you know, we see videos of things that have happened overseas stuff like that i do i know that 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 it actually happened that way no i don't uh i come from a from a generation where you could trust that what you were seeing uh generally had to have happened at least somewhat the way that it was being portrayed but that's not the case anymore and do i have what level of confidence do I have that the 2024 election will be fair and uh, unhindered and unrigged? Zero. We already see it happening. Colorado, was it Maine? or yeah, It was Maine. And I think there's like 14 other states that you know, this could all happen. I think they're, they're all going to get quashed by the Supreme Court, but that's only for now. Uh, the very fact that they're willing to do what they're doing um, certainly, I, and I live in Maricopa County, <laughs> uh, which I'll just be honest with you. I, I would say we have just as much chance of a fair counting of the ballots in Maricopa County as in Chicago. Um, which means everybody in, in any of our, uh, cemeteries will be, will be voting too. Um, our borders are wide open. Uh, we have... Uh, military age. We have we have we have an army invading, and I said on Twitter, our nation's been taken over by traitors. Uh, that's where we are. 
So you look at 2024, and I said yesterday morning, I just got got the idea, and I posted something on Twitter. Got a lot of, in matter of hours, it got you know, like, like 30,000 views and things like that. Um, basically talking about what I could, what I would predict for 2024. And what I said was, I, I just have a feeling um, that things will be more different for everyone in the United States a year from now than during any similar period of time. And people said, oh, you're forgetting about the Civil War and stuff like that. No. The, 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 the culture in 1859 and 1866 really wasn't all that changed. There were a lot of dead people, a lot of maimed people, uh, cities lying in ruins, but the culture, the the um, that really didn't change in in that time period. Uh, the war was a huge upheaval, but to have the kind of change I'm thinking about requires a tremendous amount of technology, and uh, they didn't have that type of technology at that time period. So, um, I could really foresee January first, twenty twenty five, being a period of. Um, incredible upheaval, uh, martial law, maybe constitution suspended, um, violence in the streets, depending on who's quote unquote won the election or didn't win the election or obviously didn't win the election, but is going to be said to have won the election anyways. I don't know. I don't know, but I could certainly see it happening. I can't, I can't understand how anybody would say, no, 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 you're just you're you're getting too excited again. Uh, that could never happen. That could never happen after 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 COVID in 2020 and 2021. That could never happen. Yeah, no. Um, anything can happen <laughs> as far as that's concerned. Um, so, yeah, I I closed it off by saying, hey, same thing I've been saying. I was saying during 2020, 2021, when vaccine stuff's happening and, uh, you know, the seals are getting kicked out and all the, all that stuff that was going on. Um, I said then it's, it's all a matter of the world having its hooks in us because of our stuff, because of our love of the things of the world. And if we don't have that love of the things of the world, then the world won't have any control over us. Um, and we will we will find the secret of being content uh, even if we lose most of our earthly possessions. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sitting here saying that I know that all this type of stuff's going to happen. Uh, I just know that it, it seems to me that the people who want to make fundamental change in vastly diminishing freedom and liberty in the world, um, initiating a massive wealth transfer from the West outside to something, somewhere, um, that these individuals have the power, they're in the positions to do this, and they will not allow anyone to take that power away from them. Um, they are entrenched and they're going to do what they need to do. Um, 
Likewise, did you see what happened with, uh, what's Bankman Freed? Is that the guy's name? Um, you know, the guy who stole billion, billions of dollars from people, defrauded them, and used that money to buy political influence. He donated over $100 million to um, Democrats, I believe in 2020. Might have been 2022, but I believe it was in 2020. Uh, over $100 million. And it was all a Ponzi scheme. It was all fraud. And the government, the regime, um, has dropped the election fraud charges against him. Um, because the government's run by the same people who benefited from the $100 million that he gave them. I mean, the level of, not incompetence, but just straightforward, we don't care, we are corrupt, we have been purchased, and uh, we, we, we used to look at banana republics and go... You should be like us. And now the banana republics are looking at us going, <laughs> we never dreamed up what you've come up with. Um, it is truly disgusting. Yes, sir. Oh, I, you just reminded me. I've been asking the question of some of my, uh, well, you know, we're all spending time with family members that we don't spend a whole lot of time with. And uh, no, I've just been spending well, time with my wife and my cats. Yeah, so. well, <laughs> and I asked the question, you know, it's like, oh, you, so you think that was an insurrection? So what do they call it when Democrats do it? Yeah. You know, I yeah. mean, that's the double standard is is tremendous uh, because as I recall, we've only had maybe two true insurrections in this country. Uh, that's the one that founded it and then the one that caused the Civil War. And that's at best because, you know, arms and fighting and people, a lot of people dying is what that is. But no, but same goes here. It's like, you know what? Uh, if it's the Democrats doing it, it's fine. Nothing to see here. Move along. Yeah, uh, there's there's absolutely no question that the uh, the rule of law has ended, um, and you know what's that going to mean, and and who are the people in charge now? Um, it's the the wheels are coming off fast, and once the once that first wheel comes off, um, it's gonna get it's gonna get ugly. It it truly truly is. And I I had people saying yesterday, well, so what do we do? And you know, uh, since none of us know exactly how, you know, which direction it's going to go first and and things like that, no one can answer that question until things start actually happening. And then we're going to have to be somewhat, doesn't seem to be a lot of people willing to do, be, be this way, but somewhat uh, gracious at that point in time because we've never faced this in our lifetimes. Um, nobody, nobody in the generations before faced this type of um, societal meltdown uh, to where you have the video that we all saw yesterday of a lieutenant colonel in the Space Force. I have not met anyone in the Space Force, personally, first of all. I suppose they're out there somewhere. But a lieutenant colonel, and there's the picture, two pictures. Dude, check. Well, actually, dude and ugly fake chick. Um, uh, in drag, yeah. Um, and, and we're all supposed to just salute 
and and say this is wonderful. And that the, the sad thing is, Christians in the military are told to salute and to lie to that person and to say "ma'am" when it's a dude. Um, you know, you're you're just supposed to. And I I can't help but think of Solzhenitsyn, live not according to lies, and that's. That's what's going on. And so um, 2024 is, is going to challenge the stability of our foundations of faith. Let's just put it that way. Um, and we are going to have to be thinking about things and, and facing issues that we've just never, never thought we'd be facing in the context that we are. And um, it's going to be a challenge. It's going to be a challenge. So, um, yeah, there we go. Okay. Um, where do we go first? Um, I'll go ahead and talk about this first. Well, first, we're 20, not quite 20 minutes in because um, I'm not counting the first few minutes. We're going to have to cut off. <clears throat> I uh, reposted a... Uh, I don't know if this is a tweet or a Facebook thing. I can't always tell the difference. Uh, From Matthew Barrett from December 27th. As normal, he is uh, promoting a um, book by a Roman Catholic, Matthew Levering. I remember, boy, it was was two years ago this January um, when Levering's name came up in the... Reformed Baptist conversations um, that were being that were going on sort of started all this stuff for us, anyways. Uh, January of uh, 2021, and uh, now Matthew Barrett, obviously teaching at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, I I'll get to this in a second, but it was interesting. Um, might have even been this morning, I saw a tweet, or last night, I forget which one, which one it was, where someone was saying, you know, I've, I've read your book, Scripture Alone, I've read his book on Sola Scriptura. I think it's God's Word Alone. Um, and I just don't see that you all are in disagreement at all. And I said, you'd, you'd be right, because in 2016, we're on the same page. Um, you read that book, his book, and there's two references to Thomas Aquinas, and they're basically neutral. They're just in passing. Um, I don't believe Matthew Barrett would write that book today. It would be very, very different. There would be a at least an entire chapter on Aquinas and uh, Aquinas's contributions to an understanding of Scripture and blah, 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 blah. I just, I just don't think he could write a book on that subject without including that. But 2016 was... Prior to his, what do we, we need to come up with a word. What, what term should we use for when you, you don't Pope, you, and, and you don't, you don't Aquinas, you don't Thomas. Um, I don't know. We'll, we'll think of something, but it's when you fall in love, uh, with scholasticism and, um, 
the whole idea that if you're really going to be a a good Christian scholastic, then you need to you need need to have your pictures of Thomas Aquinas on your wall, and maybe your students will be drawing you pictures of Aquinas and and uh, giving you little Aquinas bobbleheads and and stuff like that. Um, but there's this, you know, when you ask Thomas into your heart and and become a a true um, born again scholastic, uh, it changes everything, and it, it changes how you look at things. And and uh, Thomas all of a sudden finds a way into everything. And so, yeah, there there wasn't much of a difference in the uh, perspectives and things like that in 2016. Same thing with the large majority of my Reformed Baptist brethren. We were, we were pretty much on the same page. I mean, 2015 is where you can mark the Southern California Pastors Conference thing, and that's when a lot of stuff was going on. Um, but yeah, we were still pretty much going the same direction at that point. And um, so Matthew Barrett uh, is promoting Matthew Levering's book, uh, Reconfiguring Thomistic Christology. Thomistic Christology. Um, it's isn't it funny? Um, at first, you know, well, it's it's Thomas's theology proper. It's Thomas's understanding of simplicity. It's uh, Thomas in these areas, and now it's now it's Thomistic Christology. So now there's a specific Christology that you and. If you know anything about Thomas, and, and the problem is, even if you do, if you don't agree with the scholastics on everything, um, then you just haven't read enough Thomas. Uh, no one could ever read enough Thomas for the Thomas. But um, it, it doesn't take a degree in scholastic history uh, to recognize that Within Roman Catholicism, once you start talking about Christology, um, the the pathway is clear and inevitable into a discussion of Eucharistic theology. And if you know anything about Thomas, then you know he has a deep mystical. Eucharistic theology that is inevitably connected to his Christology. You can't, you can't escape it. And so what this does, again, is raise the reality that a person who mocks Biblicism and who mocks the idea of the sufficiency of Scripture to function as the norm by which we measure everything, including Thomas's metaphysics, his theology proper, um, and the entire realm of his uh, theological um, perspectives. Uh, you, you, you. Where, where, do, where do you draw the line? Where, where does this stop? Um, so I'm sure that if you go to, uh, the Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary bookstore, you're going to find copies of Reconfiguring Thomistic Christology because 
Um, uh, it says here, this book has won one of Credo Magazine's book awards. Ooh. Um, and so I, I mentioned on... Um, so it, it, what it said was, this book is the most important contribution in years. For too long, dogmatics and biblical theology are worlds apart. But this is not necessary. We can bring the good work we are doing, we are doing, retrieving Aquinas into orbit with the findings of evangelical biblical theology. Now, again, good luck meaningfully in application differentiating between biblical theology and being a biblicist. Conversant with both fields, Levering, Roman Catholic, is hope that we will one day move past naive biblicism to a land where the lamb of biblical theology and the line of dogmatics dwell together. To learn more, see why this book was one of the Credo Magazine Book Awards. And then you've got the um, link to the book awards you can go read from Matthew Barrett. And I reposted I reposted this graphic and I said, I just, I just want to make sure that the board of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, whoever they may be, I don't even know who they are. I haven't taken the time to look them up. I'm not contacting them. I don't have any connections. I mean, I just happened to speak in Kansas City and had hence met uh, graduates of MBTS who attended my talks. And we had some interesting conversations about this stuff. But I don't know anybody at MBTS. Um, but I do believe that the board should be aware of where the, the school is headed and what this what all of this means, and that people like Levering uh, and White, different White, obviously, Roman Catholic uh, priests and monks all, um, that their, their books and their writings are being mainstreamed, mainlined, uh, right into the classrooms at MBTS. Um, and in this context... Um, they obviously, Barrett obviously feels like um, he is a part of this resourcement movement, which obviously these guys feel like we are doing something for the church. You, you just can't appreciate how much we're doing for the church in helping to move us past naive biblicism. And that's how they, you wonder why these guys are so brittle, so easily offended, why they block everybody right, left, and center. Um, because they really think that we are a bunch of naive biblicists, that we just have the IQ of what shoelace. And so they really do believe. I mean, scholastics, I've told you about the horrible feeling that I got at the 1998 ETS meeting of the academy and its 
infinite wisdom. Uh, the guiding lights to the benighted church. The idea of academics in, in service to the church. In humble service to the church. Nah, no, that wasn't. Mm. And it, it really turned me off. It really, really, really did. Um, but yeah, they, they do believe that anyone criticizing them is just, it's just a naive biblicist. So what that um, very interestingly leads me to um, is, oh, I just, I just hopped in there. Can't talk about that on the air, but that'll be interesting to see. Um, we got a word? Aquinification? Okay, look, guys. Look. Who? Oh, well, I'm not in the chat. Okay, so we got we to <laughs> give credit to Nick Riker for that one in the chat. So we got to make sure we give him a shout-out. <clears throat> okay, look, Nick. You said Nick? Okay. Nick. Nick, l- listen to me now. Okay. Um, when, we're, when we're trying to find pithy little terms for like, oh, he poped, you know, that, that, it rolls off the tongue. You know, poped is easy. Let's see. Um, if you, if you have to, aquinification, okay, six syllables is about four and a half syllables long, um, for something like that. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I'm not sure I could say that three times fast. So, um, yeah, someone in chat says aquinification. Okay. Um, yeah, <clears throat> there you go. I, I, that does work. I, I mean, uh, obviously Matthew Barrett experienced aquinification. Uh, yeah, we may be stuck with it. Yep, we may be we may be stuck with it. It it. Yeah, now we have to start talking about is there a cure for aquinification? Um, yeah, okay, we, we might roll with it. We might roll with it. Um, so yeah, there you go. <clears throat> How did I get to that? I don't know. Um, I, I have the file up, but I didn't get to the point in it that I wanted to play, so it would take too long to, to find that. <clears throat> I listened to a discussion a um well where to go well maybe i don't have it up oh never mind use a different program um i listened to the the man that i'm going to be debating one of the men i'm going to be debating one of four men I will be debating, once I'm, one I'm debating twice, in the upcoming marathon trip is Dr. Dale Tuggy. Now, we have uh, played Tuggy's discussion, portions of Tuggy's discussion with William Lane Craig. Uh, we've read some of his, um, what he obviously thinks are his best arguments against the Trinity. He is a Unitarian. He is a philosophical Unitarian, uh, analytical philosopher. Uh, he's not a theologian. He's not an exegete. Um, and 
so we've engaged with him. We're going to be debating the last debate of the five that we're going to be doing in uh, February and March on the same trip. And so I was listening to, he, he has something called the Trinity's Podcast. And his whole thing is about all the differing Trinitarian theories that exist out there. Really, I think one of his arguments would be there are so many that it renders the whole subject as nothing more than the speculations of philosophers. And there's there's some level of truth to that. Um, if you if you approach the doctrine from the wrong perspective, and that's what we're talking about when we talk about grounding our Christian understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity in Thomas and in Thomas's theology, um, we put ourselves in this boat. We, we put ourselves in this situation. There's nothing we can do about it. And he is, in, in this particular episode that I was listening to, uh, episode number 370, he is interviewing Dr. Stephen Nemish, um, who's a graduate of Fuller Seminary, fairly recent graduate of Fuller Seminary, who is uh, clearly wildly unorthodox. He's cranking books out right, left, and center. And it's all analytical, philosophical analysis of post-Catholic theology. And he's not using the term Catholic as in Roman Catholic at all. But basically, fourth century onward. And so he's making objections to the doctrine of the Trinity that are directly relevant. I mean, the, 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 the conversation starts off and I may play portions of this. We'll see. Uh, at least it's one of the topics that I'm dealing with. I only have a month. I leave in one month and six days. And um, I have to have my opening statement for that debate done in less than a month because part of the contractual obligation to get Dale Tuggety in debate was that I provide him with my opening statement as he'll provide me with his. And no, that is the only time I've ever done that, and he demanded it. So, um, as I've said, Dr. Tuggy is extremely textually oriented, not textually as in scripture, textually as in a manuscript, as something that's written out. And so he wants that, he wants to know where I'm going from the start so he can respond to it. And since I'm doing the positive, that's a huge advantage to him, but that's fine. <laughs> We'll do it. So I have to be very much focused on the content of those five debates and presentations that I'm making. Um, and I have a Baptist church history class to teach in the process, which I don't even know how I'm going to get to all that. Uh, in fact, I just realized I need to send an email to the seminary. Um, that I was supposed to get to today, and I didn't. Anyway, uh, this conversation starts off by defining particular 
um, aspects of Trinitarian theology, focusing upon uh, the doctrine of simplicity. Interesting, some of the comments that he has on that, um, recognizing that there are strict forms of simplicity and less strict forms of simplicity. And, by the way, um, I am hoping that Dr. Jeffrey Johnson will be able to join us on Thursday. I don't know that right now. He um, uh, hit the brakes wrong on a mountain trail on a mountain bike (laughs) and went over the handlebars and uh, did what most people, most cyclists, when you crash, there is one injury that you will sustain when you crash on a, on a bike. And that is you'll break your collarbone. Um, Lance Armstrong had a, had a carbon fiber collarbone uh, installed at one point. He had broken it so many times. And so he broke his collarbone and he likewise broke three ribs. And here's the problem. I, I'm sure Brother Johnson is will do his best to join us. I just don't want him to be on drugs when he comes on. <laughs> and I don't know about you, um, but if I had three broken ribs for only a few days later, yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't... And besides that, when you've got three broken ribs, the last thing you want to do is laugh. Um... And I suppose we could try to keep things as serious as possible, but still, um, when you're on pain meds, things become happy and funny, so you never know. Um, So right now, the the plan is that I will contact him tomorrow, and we'll make a decision as to whether we want to put that off um, or or just what. It, It takes a while to recover from something like that. That's a, that's a big bang bang. Um, so we will, we will see. But what made me think about that was one element of the conversation that we will be having with Dr. Johnson in light of his book. His book is out for delivery for me today. It's not that I haven't already read it. I have read it more than once, uh, but the physical copy is, is due at my house, I believe, um, this afternoon. Uh, there is discussion, a fair amount of discussion in the book on a philosophical classical theism versus a biblical classical theism. And it has to do with origins. Where, where, do, you, where do you derive your fundamental categories of thought and expression? And there are people who fundamentally derive their Trinitarian theology from a form of philosophical speculation. And that's problematic. And so this conversation with Stephen Nemish um, starts off talking about simplicity and the processions, divine processions, the Father begets, the Son is begotten, the Spirit is spirated, and the idea that the only way you can distinguish between Father, Son, and Spirit is by the divine processions. And we've heard a lot of people saying that as well. 
uh, post-Nicene Orthodoxy. Um, I do not recall in the hour and six minutes of the episode that I listened to the citation of a single text of Scripture. Um, what was very, very obvious when you listen, when you get at least two analytical philosophers together and listen to them talking with one another, they they all end up sounding the same. I, I remember listening to a Roman Catholic um, interviewing James Dolezal on similar issues. And there were a couple Bible verses cited, but they were never exegeted. It was just mentioned in passing for the language. But much of the conversation was very, 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 very similar. Um, as far as the categories of thought that were being utilized. Anyway, Nemesh provides four arguments that he says fundamentally make the Catholic doctrine of the Trinity, which he's just using that again as a very vague post-fourth century um, view of the Trinity. Um, incoherent. And he basically uh, bases this on the difference between Ugia, the essence of God, and hypostasis, um, the divine persons, and what is prior to what. Now, in analytical philosophy, priority doesn't mean temporal priority, but that which explains the existence of something else. And so, um, he makes the argument that, you know, if... If the Ugia, if the essence, now, there was development historically in the understanding of those terms, Ugia, hypostasis, there was, there was confusion between East and West. The East had, had fought against modalism and monarchianism and had developed language to do that. And unfortunately, that language runs into translational issues into Latin for the West, and there was a lot of confusion at that particular point in time. And there was development even between 325 and 381. Um, that's something I want to bring up at another point in time and, and talk about, you know, even what that means to us as well. But um, he, he makes the argument that if the Ugia comes first and there's a contradiction with the priority of the Father, uh, if the hypostases come first and you end up with four things, and, and all the conversation, all the four different arguments are based upon philosophical categories. And if you listen, if you remembered listening, if you remember back during the summer when I played portions, well, actually, you know what? I just realized 
I didn't play these portions. I, I directed you to them, but I didn't play these portions of the conversation between William Lane Craig and Dale Tuggy. In the first half, where Tuggy is going after Craig, the, the, the conversation is, well, you know, I am not convinced of that argument. I do not necessarily utilize that category. I don't necessarily believe that term means this. And that's how, that, that's all that philosophers do, is have arguments like that, that never end up coming to any type of conclusion. Um, because if you did, then they, they'd have to stop publishing, and that's death. So, um, that, that was, it was the same kind of round and round, and I'm not sure that I necessarily accept that definition, and, da, 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 and, and everybody gets to just sort of accept what they want to accept, and the, the idea is to try to push the other guy into making contradictory statements, but once you claim the right to sort of define everything as you feel like defining it, you're never really going to be pushed into that position anyway. So that's the stuff that's going on. And I I'm still might do this, but you, you play something like this for most people. And what it did for me was to verify once again the importance of recognizing from whence the doctrine of the Trinity comes. If the doctrine of the Trinity is an a priori creedal reality that must be held so as to properly interpret Scripture, then you cannot say that it's coming from the witness of Scripture. Right? If you say you have to start with our conclusion to be able to rightly handle Scripture, now you're going to have to explain where your conclusion came from, and it can't be from Scripture because you can't rightly handle Scripture without your conclusion. See? So, I was going to grab this. I haven't grabbed this one in a while. But, um... Still smells good. I still see the, yeah, yeah, see the page edging still looks good. I, I, I dyed the page edges on this one. This is the ESV uh, Creeds and Confessions one that I got from Jeffrey Rice. And uh, I did the, the page edging <clears throat> myself. But um, it all comes down to what I've said before. I have I've used illustration. I've, I've shown it to you, you know, sitting here uh, in this very seat, and I've said, "Where is, where is the revelation of the doctrine of the Trinity?" Well, it's right there. It's in the gutter between Malachi and Matthew. It happened in history, and this is the God-breathed testimony to it, so that what you have here is you have the, and actually the only you know, smaller portion, of that, it's only, only about yay much, that's Revelation. But you, what you have are Trinitarians teaching Trinitarianly 
in the New Testament. And so the, the doctrine becomes a biblical doctrine because the historical revelation of it is only revealed to us prophetically in the Tanakh, what we call the Old Testament, and then lived out in the New. And so, if that's the source and origin of the doctrine, then anything that comes after this, we can, we can be thankful. I'm very, very thankful for the insights into the doctrine of the Trinity uh, provided by B.B. Warfield. Doesn't make B.B. Warfield inspired. It doesn't make him a, a standard outside of Scripture. Um, but we can be thankful for those who, in the past, either recent or ancient, have reflected properly upon what is found in Scripture. And we can... You can look at a, at a Gregory of Nyssa... Gregory Nazianzus. Um, you can look at Basil or an Athanasius or an Augustine. Uh, and in each one, you are going to have to wrestle with the reality that you can learn things from them without accepting everything they have to say. Because almost no one today does accept everything that they have to say. So, I can't think of a single one of those men that I just mentioned, including Warfield, that I would not have biblical disagreements with. Warfield was a Presbyterian, obviously. So, And on matters of church governance and sacraments, and even an understanding of justification, I would have differences with every one of the ancient men that I mentioned. I've, I've talked about Augustine and his, um, I think, self-contradictory view of justification. And the contradictions that exist in his theology due to the Donatist controversy, the Pelagian controversy, the, the context in which he lived. And I apply the same standards to Augustine or to Gregory, um, either of the Gregories or to Basil or whatever, um, Ambrose, any, everybody. And that makes me a Biblicist. I, I think any Baptist is a Biblicist because my final authority is Scripture. And ontologically, as to the nature of Scripture, it has a unique essence. It is the, it's the Word of God written. It is given to the church to have a specific function and purpose. That nothing else 
is in the same class and category as what you have in Scripture. Now, for some reason, when it comes to those post-Nicene writers, uh, or even uh, contemporaneous with, with Nicaea, Athanasius, when it comes to theology proper, you just simply have to accept whatever they had to say. Then the problem is, there was, as I said, there's development from Athanasius to Gregory. There's development in this in the decades after Nicaea. And what's the standard by which development must be tested? Scripture. And so, what I would love to do is I would love to challenge our um, classical theism, and, and of course that's term created by the open, open theists to describe all of us, but our philosophical classical theists. I would like to challenge them to listen to that podcast and to tell me how would you respond to, to Stephen Nemich? How would you respond to his arguments where he says, look, if you try to hold on to divine simplicity and processions and the distinction of usia and hypostasis, uh, you can't do it. You have to give something up to come up with any type of workable conclusion. I'd like to know how you respond to it, because I know how I respond to that, and since I'll be debating him, um, I would assume some of this is going to come up, and so I know how I would respond. The problem is you all don't seem to think that my grounding the Trinity as the biblical Trinity, as a biblical revelation, is a coherent or possible thing to do. So we're, we're not going to respond the same way. You, you've accepted the validity of the categories that he's utilizing, so how do you get around the resultant objection? I'd really love to see how that would be done. I really, really would. Um, because this is, this is one of the issues. I, I'm debating him. I'm not Nemish, but um, Tuggy in March. And it's on a very closely related topic. And so it's something I'm definitely thinking about. And so my question is, how would the rest of you do it? Since you have such insights, how would the rest of you do it? Um, I will try to remember uh, to blog the uh, a link to it. And see if anyone... I haven't heard anybody answering the other question I asked last week. Um about how to respond to people regarding Matthew 24, 36. Haven't heard any answers to that, but 
Anyway. Um, okay. Now, we got started a little bit late, and we'll go a few minutes over. Um, I wanted to respond to, and what we've done up to this point in time has been rather heavy and difficult to follow. Soteriology 101 posted a, um, a tweet. And I just want to briefly respond to it. It says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be the... That's even, that even spelled correctly. Hallowed be. It says, hallowed, hallowed by thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Oh, wait! Your will is already always being done exactly as you determined, so just keep doing that. Amen. Now, there have been a number of times that I have muted Soteriology 101. In fact, I think I may have even blocked him for a while. And part of the reason is just the frustration. I don't like to hear people constantly mocking God's truth who clearly have no ears to hear, no matter how many times they are corrected, that they are mocking God's truth. No one who is ever any kind of Calvinist. And again, I've, I've met lots of former Calvinists, and when you start pushing on them, you discover, I don't know what they think they were, but they had no knowledge of the basics of the system. And here's a good example. But likewise, the willingness to engage in this kind of thing, this constant willingness to mock God's decree. E even if you come to the conclusion that the Bible doesn't teach there is a decree of God, I, think there I would think there would be some hesitation um, to engage in this kind of behavior. It is um, childish and self-destructive. Um, but in this instance... Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, as Leighton Flowers should know, but clearly doesn't, or because if he does know, then he's being dishonest. And if we're going to give him the benefit of the doubt that he's not being dishonest, then he just never knew. But when we talk about the will of God, we have, over the years, more than once, gone rather in-depth into a discussion of the fact that there is, in Scripture, of necessity, in the Bible, a revelation of God's will expressing His character, His holiness, expressing his law for mankind. And this is his prescriptive will. So, we know that in the law, you are not to murder. We know that you are not to uh, cheat others. That you are not to lie. And these represent the Creator's character and hence impact how the creature is to live in God's world. 
But we also know that there is a decretive will, that is, the will that forms the very fabric of time. When God says he is going to accomplish his purposes, he's going to do as he pleases in heaven on earth. We looked only a few weeks ago at Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar's testimony to God's utter freedom to act not only in heaven, but upon earth, so as to accomplish his purpose. There's no one who can ward off his hand, say to him, why have you done this? And we recognize that the fundamental error of Leighton Flowers over and over and over again is the same thing. He will not allow for these two divine realities to exist side by side. So you listen to his attempt to deal with Genesis 50, for example, and it's, it's incoherent. It has to be. Because in Genesis 50, you have the prescriptive will, don't kill your brother. And the decretive will. Your brother's got to go to Egypt. <laughs> and he's got to go there in a certain way. And biblically, you accept both and you function in light of both, but the provisionists can't do that. And so they flatten it out and get rid of one aspect of the biblical revelation. So as Christians who want to live in the light of all of the biblical revelation and not just the parts that make mankind feel good about himself, um, we recognize that when we say, your will be done, uh, we are not playing um, time games as little time-bound creatures so as to mock the eternal one. And we are not saying, well, we're going to do our best to make God's decretive will um, take place. Oh, wait, your decretive will is always being done exactly as you determined, so just keep doing that. Um, instead, we are expressing the reality that God works in his people in such a way that one of the primary mechanisms of sanctification is the forming of our will into conformance with God's prescriptive will. So, think about it. Uh, we dealt with this last month in our Jared Longshore response. What's one of the key elements of the description of the New Covenant in Hebrews chapter 8. I'll write my law upon their hearts. I'll write my law upon their hearts. And so, the regenerate believer longs to see God's will done. And that includes around us, in our society, our family, our nation, and within us. So work your will in me. Conform my will to your will. That's, that's really the, the key to an understanding of Jesus' teaching on prayer. Because when Jesus says, whatever you ask, it will be done for you, we see the perversions of that in the word faith movement and things like that. The prosperity gospel. 
but the reality is that's that is a completely valid promise but it's for those whose will has been conformed to his and so the whole idea is whatever you ask will be in accordance with God's will not yours and that may include your own suffering but it'll always be whatever makes me more like Christ. And God will do that. <laughs> um, because we have been aligned with his will in that process. But it truly is a, an element of sanctification. It truly is an element of what it means to be a follower of Christ. To pray that in my life, God's, God's will be done. I don't want to get in the way. I don't want to walk in, in a way that will distract. You know, Peter should have been praying that prayer the, the day of Matthew 16. And Jesus had to say, get behind me, Satan, because he wasn't doing the will of God. He was putting his own will first. And only the most childish and disrespectful attitude can make you go, well, see... Uh, we should we should say, you know, oh wait, your will is always already always being done exactly as you determined. Confusing the decretive with the prescriptive and the fact that God has decreed in his decree, which the provisionists just don't believe in. They just don't accept it. That he would work within us in time to conform us to the image of Christ. And so that is a, a daily reality of the Christian experience, is a desire for God's will to be done in this world, in our society, uh, in, our, in our own lives. But that doesn't require you to deny the distinction clearly made in Scripture between the decree of God and, um, and His law. So one other thing to... Uh, get to before we close up shop here. Um, oh, and I, I, we did not test this. Great. We will see um, if this is going to work. But quick Leighton Flowers um, thing here that again, I think that all Reformed believers should be prepared to rather easily respond to this kind of um, rhetorical thing. But if you've not heard it before, sometimes it can throw you off, but it, it, it shouldn't be something that causes us any issues. But <clears throat> let's, um, well, first of all, let's just see if it's going to work. And that's why I think this is so important to highlight, because ultimately what Calvinists have done unintentionally is they have made the gift of the gospel insufficient for those who end up rejecting it. Okay. The gift of the gospel. Where do you get that from Scripture? <clears throat> Look up the term gospel, and you will never find it described as a gift. It is something that is proclaimed. It is something that is obeyed, so it is a command. It's not a gift. Uh, eternal life is a gift. Forgiveness is a gift. 
There's lots of things. I mean, the, the term grace, charis in Greek, can be translated as gift. And so there, there are places where it is appropriately translated that way. So, God is gracious in proclaiming the gospel, but it is a powerful proclamation, and it is a command to repent and believe. So, by framing it, well, the gospel is a gift. No. Eternal life is a gift to repentant individuals. Forgiveness is a gift. You could describe every aspect of what God does in the salvation of the elect as gracious and therefore a gift. But the gospel is something that is proclaimed and it's a command. And once you uh, change the very nature of what evangelism is, which is the proclamation of the good news. But you see, from the provisionist perspective, again, starting with man as the defining element, rather than the fact that Father, Son, Holy Spirit are glorifying themselves in the gospel. That's, that's not very often, the way the gospel is presented. And you say, well, yeah, because we're, we're presenting it to people, so we have to start with the, we've got to start with them. That's the problem. <coughs> Excuse me, that's the problem. As long as you start with them, you will never be able to get beyond them. What you win them with is what you win them to. If you win them with a message that is focused upon them, their control, their importance, their centrality, don't be surprised if when you get to other passages of Scripture later on, once they're baptized and in the church, that they're like, whoa, wait a minute, what do you mean deny self, take up cross, holiness of life, what? You see? That's, that's part of the issue. There is a... The gospel is a divine proclamation, and therefore when you proclaim it as Scripture presents it, you do so with divine authority. And when we abandon that divine authority by watering it down to make it more palatable to rebel sinners we are demonstrating we don't understand the gospel ourselves. So, first thing, redefinition of the gospel as a gift rather than a powerful proclamation that is to be obeyed. Obedience to the gospel, that is a biblical phrase. In other words, it's not a sufficient means of grace. There okay, it's not a sufficient means of grace. What does that mean? Um... When the gospel is joined by the power of the Spirit to bring about the regeneration of one of God's people, there's no power in heaven and earth that can stop it. So it is an absolutely sufficient means of grace in the sovereign decree of God. 
in the same way, it is an absolutely sufficient message when it is proclaimed to all people to hold men accountable to it. So in other words, what is the message that we are to deliver? God commands men, God commands men ever to do what? To repent. To repent. We don't know who the elect are, so we delivered a message to anyone. Uh, the old, I think the old Puritans used the term, proclaim it promiscuously to everyone without, without limitation. And God uses that. God uses that either in his grace to quell the rebellion of sinful hearts and draw men unto himself, or to exacerbate that rebellion to the just judgment of those who hate God's message. And again, from their perspective, well, he forced them to. No, he didn't. These men don't believe in Romans 5. They do not believe in federal headship. They do not believe in original sin. Uh, they do not believe in total depravity. They do not believe the biblical description of the lost as rebel sinners. In love with their sin, in love with their rebellion, and utterly unwilling to submit to the God who made them. That's, that's Romans 1, and that's why they have to try to, well, that was just a particular group of people, or that was just had a historical context to it, or, you know, any of the various ways that people have tried to get around it, the problem is you make a complete mishmash out of the Book of Romans <laughs> and its presentation of sin. And that becomes the foundation of this presentation of the gospel, and that has a lot of impacts, um, too. Rejecting it because God didn't really love them. They're, They're rejecting it because God didn't really love them. Um, no human being on earth has knowledge of God's decree as to who he is going to express salvific love to over against those he gives common grace to. Nobody on earth knows that. So no, no human being could have knowledge of that and therefore reject God based upon his supposed previous rejection of them. Um, this is, again, pretending to have knowledge that Leighton doesn't have and no one else has. We don't know who the elect are, but we know one thing, that every one of them is elect solely by grace, and that no one, no one can say to God, why did you make me like this? That's the foundation of, you know, again, provisionism doesn't really believe Acts 4, Daniel 4, uh, any of these, these texts that talk about God's sovereign grace and the reality of the justness of God's judgment of sinners who love their sin. They don't, they don't believe any of that. They've gotten rid of all that stuff. They explain it explain it away, or make it only historically relevant, or something like that. It doesn't really have anything to do with anybody today. 
<clears throat> so we don't know who the elect are. And it is not a matter of presenting the gospel as if, well, if you do, you, Jesus has done this nice thing for you, therefore you need to do a nice thing for Jesus. That's how a lot of people present it. I mean, he was so nice to die for you. Can't you just believe in him? I mean, it's, it's just so little, a little thing to do. That's not Bible. You never find the apostles talking like that at all. They're not really being offered the gift because Jesus didn't die for them. They're not really being offered the gift. Notice there's now been a, a shift. Before, at the beginning, you had the gospel as a gift. But now, what is being quote-unquote offered? Well, I'm not sure, but this is the, and again, it's a standard objection. There's numerous articles, books have been written on this particular objection that it's not a well-meant offer if you believe in particular redemption. But that assumes that somehow you can know the identities of those who are united with Christ in his death. And a lot of people are just willing to go, well, hey, I'm willing to sacrifice the efficacious nature of Christ's death so as to avoid the conundrum that comes from saying Christ died only for the elect. Since my gospel presentation is based upon Christ's death actually not saving, but only making men savable, then I'm going to have to alter my presentation of, of the gospel and how I, how I approach people. And I go, no. Um, there is plain, clear, biblical teaching on what the death of Christ accomplishes. And we have plain, biblical teaching that Christ's death, Christ's people are united with him in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That is vitally important. And we can, without question, say that there has never been anyone who has turned to Christ in repentance and faith and not found him to be a perfect Savior. But we know the only people that are going to do, going to do that. So the question becomes, yeah, but what are you offering people? We, we proclaim one thing. To anyone who will repent and believe Jesus Christ will be a perfect Savior. Yeah, but you don't think everybody can do that. So, I don't know who it is and who it isn't. I don't know who he is going to have mercy on and who he's not. I don't know that, and I don't have to know that. And you're the one that has to explain how you have to have that knowledge for the message to be valid. We've been told what message to proclaim. Okay, and as ambassadors... You go and you proclaim your Lord's message. You don't have the right to sit there and say, and I get to ask all these other questions about what's behind all that.
You don't get to do that. So it is a perfectly valid statement for me to say to anyone, if you will turn in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ, you will find him to be a perfect Savior. And then you go, but, but you might say that to someone that Jesus didn't die for. Well, again, I say, if you will re- turn in repentance and faith, that act, which is the result only in reality of the, of the Spirit of God, is what will demonstrate that they are a part of those for whom Christ died. But I don't, it's hyper-Calvinism when you start running around thinking that you can look into people's hearts and figure that out on your own. And there's no basis for doing that. And therefore they're rejecting what? They're rejecting a God who first rejected them? <clears throat> so again, there's there's no Romans 5 in provisionism. There is no, Adam is not, is not the head of these individuals. So they have not sinned in Adam. And so they're innocent. You see, and as long as you have the idea that mankind is just this, these poor innocent creatures and there's this big mean God up there that's just forcing them to be bad and, and they just don't have a chance and all the rest of this kind of stuff. Yeah, you know, there's 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 a bunch of stuff in here that ain't going to make a lick of sense. In fact, I'd suggest to you the vast majority of the Old Testament does not make a lick of sense if you have that idea. I mean, that's why so many of these people, you know, turn the Old Testament into just, you know, fantasy stories and didn't really happen and God wouldn't do that and blah, 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 blah. Because it's just so obvious that, you know, look at the Philistines, look at the Egyptians. Shit doesn't fit into this, oh, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life stuff. Tell that to all of Pharaoh's army. <laughs> yeah, uh, ain't going to happen. Amorites or anybody else. So, <clears throat> again, the issue here is the provisionist focus upon God's rejection of them rather than what the Bible focuses upon, and that is God made them, they are therefore under obligation to be thankful to God and to worship Him as God, but they don't do it. So, provisionist anthropology is 20,000 miles away from anything that would be derived from the consistent exegesis of Scripture. It's humanistic. It really is. They're Pushing back wow. against a God who created them for destruction? Back against a God who created... As if they know this? They want to destroy God. They want to destroy God's creation. But you actually think it's a valid argument that they're pushing back against the God who wants... Who created them for destruction as if they know this? They don't know this. It's, it's just amazing the knowledge that these guys want to attribute to the lost that spiritual knowledge it comes from scripture <laughs> no they love their sin they love their sin well I, who wouldn't <laughs> who wouldn't reject that kind of a god the fact is this is about the blameworthiness of the sinner 
How much more blameworthy is somebody who's rejecting a God who loves and provides for him, who actually wants him to come? Now, did you catch that? So there you have, um, there you have, it's, it's more blameworthy if they're rejecting a God who loves them. So what you need is a, is a God who must be able to be disappointed. So, so he can provide them of life. He can provide them with a clear revelation of his existence. He can provide them with the light of conscience. And that's not enough. That's not enough. Um, he needs to have the same salvific love. He needs to be bummed at their rejection. That evidently is what makes them truly, them truly blameworthy. And you'll notice there wasn't a, there, you know, it was just a short little clip. But where are you gonna, where are you gonna pull that up from scripture? You're not going to. You're not going to. <clears throat> we've been saying for years. We've been saying since 2015. Man-centered versus God-centered. If you start with man, and you start with an unbiblical anthropology, no, you're never going to come to to the Reformed faith. Um, no question about it. I agree. And the only reason I can't do that is because I've got a Bible over here, and the Bible tells me something very, very different. So, there you go. All right. Well, there you go. Um... Don't know what Thursday is going to look like yet. We'll um, we'll let you know one way or the other. I I hope Brother Johnson will be ready to go. But I'm going to be honest with you. I'd rather have a good interview with someone who's comfortable and in their right mind. Because <laughs> I I've never broken a rib, but I I think I bruised one once. And I'm going to tell you something. Um, yeah, and. I'm older than than Dr. Johnson, but he ain't no spring chicken. Uh, he ain't thirty years of age. He's he's old enough that I just sort of figuring that first week is going to be ugly, and so I'm I'm just gonna I'm gonna push him. I'll be honest with you. When, when I when I talk to him tomorrow, I'm gonna push him. I'm gonna say, look, we want this to be a good interview. And and I'm I'm gonna ask you some. We're, we're gonna have to be talking about, you know, identity and Thomas and uh, simplicity and a biblical doctrine versus a philosophical doctrine. And <clears throat> look, you know, maybe from your perspective, it's easier to understand Thomas while you are on drugs. I don't know. It's <laughs> maybe it maybe it'll hurt less. Um, what well, you know, when you've got a, a ton of volume going, I don't know. Um, so Oxy Thomas, no, not good. Oxy Thomas. <laughs> Oxy Thomas. See, I wouldn't have thought of that. I, I, I wouldn't have thought of Oxy Thomas, but there you go. Um, that came from the other side of the window. So, so we'll see. Um, we may be talking about, because I, there was a, I've got a bunch of other stuff. To, to be talking about 
I have come across some some great books um, that I really am looking forward to diving into after the all the debates. I want to talk about some of the stuff that, that that's in there. It's really, really interesting because it's connecting together my studies of Roman Catholicism and my studies of Islam. It's really, really interesting. So um, we have other things we talk about. So we'll see. We'll see. We'll find out on Thursday. I'll be watching the app for an announcement on that, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for watching. God bless.